Welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For further information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. Good morning, Vineyard Cleveland, and welcome to the Sunday streaming service. So glad that you guys are here with us today. We're just going to start right off, jumping right into prayer. So dear Lord, um, thank you for this day, God. Thank you for the opportunity to gather together virtually and to experience your grace and your goodness and even, you know, a sense of community together, even when we're separate. Um, God, we pray that you would speak to our hearts through this message and through what you're, what you're saying to us in our lives, Lord. Um, pray that our hearts would be open to be changed by you. God, pray that you would move me out of the way, Lord, and use the word, use these words to change us. And because we know that your words bring life, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have been in a sermon series called, Who is My Neighbor? Kingdom Unity in a Divided World. We live in a time where things are constantly divided across ethnic lines, political lines, um, philosophical lines, socioeconomic lines, what, whatever, you name it. But as followers of Jesus, we don't belong to any of the kingdoms of this world. We don't fall in any of those markers, right? Um, which means that we follow the way of heaven, the ways of Jesus. And Jesus calls us to the radical unity that comes from loving the Lord our God with all of our hearts, souls, minds, and strength, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. But who is our neighbor, right? That's the question an expert of the law asked Jesus in Luke 10, 29. To respond, Jesus told a parable of a man who was beaten by bandits and left for dead. A priest walks by, sees the man, crosses the street, and walks on the other side. A Levite, another holy man with, you know, uh, a pure and favored ethnicity, a pure pedigree, sees the man, crosses the street, scurries on by. Then lastly, an outsider, a Samaritan, a half-breed Jew, uh, someone seen as racially, religiously, and morally repugnant, sees the man and has pity. He gets down off of his own donkey, takes care of the man's wounds, pours some of his own oil and his wine on the wounds, uses his own bandages to take care of him. He risks the time and the effort in a place that was clearly still dangerous. And then he brings this man to an end, continues to take care of him, and pays for all of the man's medical expenses. And at the end of telling the story, Jesus asks, which of these three was a neighbor to the man who got attacked by the robbers? Because the kingdom of God does not passively wait to find out which neighbors we are supposed to love. The kingdom of God goes out into the world actively looking for neighbors to love, right? Spending ourselves on behalf of them. It's the natural progression that happens when we have been made new creations by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that when the evil of our hearts and this broken world left us bloodied and mangled and bruised, Jesus did not pass by on the other side of the road. He got down off of his proverbial horse, crossed over the barriers of his perfection and our sin, and he gave of his own self to bind up and heal our spiritual and physical wounds and to pay the full price for our healing. And because we have been transformed by that love, we too want to be neighbors who cross lines of division to meet the physical and spiritual needs of hurting and wounded people. We want to bring the eternal life 
that comes from Christ into a world bloodied and broken to bring kingdom light to swallow up darkness. Last week, we talked about the sinful roots of racism and how the gospel has special power to confront and cut off those roots, replacing them with kingdom opposites. Today is kind of like a part two of that talk because we are now going to look at the broken fruits of racism, the brokenness that results from allowing this evil to persist in our own hearts and in the world around us. And we will find again that the gospel has special power to confront and cut off these broken fruits and to bring us into a lifestyle worthy of the kingdom of God. So the most obvious fruit of racism is division, right? Racism breeds division by its very nature, emphasizing our differences and driving us apart. It draws us towards those in our camp and makes us feel protective of our side, which in turn makes us fearful or hateful of those outside. Division seeks to glorify a certain type of identity, a certain aspect of our identity, and it demonizes others, right? Whether it's whites versus blacks, Republicans versus Democrats, young versus old, poor versus rich, whatever it is, it seeks to establish our identity on certain factors and then sets us up against others who don't share that same identity. But in Christ, we have been given a new identity, Galatians 3, 26 through 29 says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Colossians 3.11 says, Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. When we put on Christ, when we are made into new creations, we receive an identity far superior than any of our old ones. No longer are we defined primarily by our ethnic differences, like the Greeks and the Jews, or our cultural differences, like circumcised or uncircumcised, our civilized or educational differences, barbarian and Scythian, our social statuses, slave or free, or even our sexual identities, male and female. Over and through and above and below and around all these identities is that Christ is all and is in all, right? Our need for division is destroyed because there is no threat to our identity. There is no threat to our our identity because our identity is wrapped up in Christ, who reigns supreme from heaven for eternity, eternally unchanging, eternally loving, eternally secure, with all authority and power under his feet. Ephesians 2, 14 through 22 says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create him in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. 
in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God to live by the Spirit. So instead of being the core of who we are, these other aspects of our identity, like our ethnicity, our race, our sex, and all those things, they are... They serve as the types of like different bricks and beams that God is using to build himself a beautiful, glorious, holy temple, a place for God to dwell. In 1 Corinthians 12, we are called the body of Christ, and our differences are likened to the different types of body parts that God has ordained to make the body whole, right? So we can celebrate the differences we have without idolizing and being consumed by them, because we know that our differences are not our main identity. They are not ends in themselves. They are there for the sake of God's glory being shown in the body of Christ. First Corinthians 12, 24 through 26, Paul says that God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care one for another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So instead of the division and isolation that racism, politicalism, and classism brings, in Christ, we empathize with each other's weaknesses. We empathize with each other's pain because we are all members of one body. So when one part of the body suffers from injustice, we all feel the pain. We all groan. We all move to help. And that's great news for us, right? Because injustice is another one of the fruits of racism. Because of the favoritism and the superiority-inferiority paradigms that often come packaged with racism, oppression and racism go hand in hand. If one group has power or privileges, it is an easy matter, a seemingly natural matter, to wield that power selfishly, to institute policies and practices that favor your group and disadvantage another. The history of whites and blacks in America is uniquely problematic because of the centuries of race-based slavery, injustice, and oppression that blacks suffer at the hands of white masters, which was also increased by, falsely justified by a strong public message of black inferiority whose effects can still be seen today. However, racism can take far more shapes than simply between white people and black people, right? In fact, there has historically been racism against almost every type of ethnic group in America, whether against Native Americans, Latinos, or Jews, or Chinese, or Irish. In every case, racism led to the oppression and injustice towards the group with less, with less social power. But sometimes people he, today hear words like injustice and oppression, and it comes with all these immediate associations, Right. It might cause me excitement to discover like another woke soul, an ally against racism, justice, and oppression. Or it might cause people to draw back in fear or defensiveness uh, against the philosophies of critical race theory and, and, and cultural Marxism. Perhaps it makes you think of a social justice warrior, which, depending on your political view, might be a champion for justice or someone who polices people's speech and actions in order to impose political correctness. Or maybe the cries for justice make you think of the recent rally, rallying cries for law and order by the political right, which, again, depending on your political view, might either be the appropriate rallying cry for decent people who like structure, or it could be a tone-deaf, thin disguise for people who support a brutal police state. 
But whatever your leaning is, we need to be careful that we don't let the world control how we think, especially when it comes to important soul matters like justice. As we've talked about earlier in the sermon series, our allegiance is not to any country, philosophy, or political party. As citizens of the kingdom of God, as his beloved children, our allegiance is to Jesus Christ and the ways of his kingdom. And as Isaiah 30, 18 says, the Lord is a God of justice. In Jeremiah 9, 24, God says that he exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth because in these things he delights. So justice is more than a social issue. It's a biblical issue, right? It's an issue that God cares about. It's dear to his heart. We always talk about how much Jesus loves us and how that moved his heart to come and die for our sins to save us. And that's true. That's great. We should talk about that. But Jesus didn't come and give his life in order to just create a people who would pray every now and then, read their Bibles and avoid doing bad things. Titus 2.14 says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all, from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We should be people who passionately pursue justice because that's why Jesus redeemed us, right? He saved us so that we can take part in the righteousness that he gives us. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Micah 6.8 says, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And as in Isaiah 58, God speaks to the people of Israel, emphasizing the importance of seeking justice. The whole chapter is so beautiful and so powerful, and please read it. But because of time, I'm just going to zoom through and give a couple of highlights. So shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day, they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of, of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. And exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and to not turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. 
If you do away with a yoke of oppression, with a pointing finger malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Again, there's so much good stuff in here. So go and read that, study that, live in that. It's so good for, for, for your soul, for our soul to take that in. But notice that God did not accuse these Israelites of not worshiping him, right? He didn't accuse them of not being religious enough or even of sins like worshiping idols. These are people who were actively seeking God, so it seems, right? Verse two says, day after day, they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. They were fasting. They were humbling themselves. And yet they were far from God. Why? What was missing? What was missing was that their spirituality wasn't transforming their physical reality. God accused the Israelites of abusing justice, of seeking their own pleasure at the expense of others, of allowing their desires to lead them into violence and strife. You can't keep close to God if you ignore people suffering from injustice and oppression around you because those are the people that God identifies with. In Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 19, Moses is speaking to the Israelites and says, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. So in the biblical times, where family and especially men had all the rights and protections of the community, the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner were the three most vulnerable people groups in the community, people with the greatest chances to be destitute, to be voiceless and powerless. But God describes himself in awesome terms, right? The God of gods and Lord of lords, great and mighty, and then he instantly and immediately attaches himself to the poor. Likewise, in Proverbs 19.17, um, God says that whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they have done. So when we are kind to the poor, it's directly credited like we are giving to God himself. And then in Matthew 25, Jesus says that whatever we do or do not do for the least of these, for people who are suffering, Whatever we do or do not do for them, we do or do not do for Christ himself. And so God paints a picture of what biblical justice looks like in Isaiah 58. Look at all the different actions he calls the Israelites to do. To loose bonds of wickedness, to undo straps of a yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. That means working to oppose systems that keep people down, which in the context of racism means working to change and fix the systems that have been imbalanced by racism and favoritism. Now, there is debate about the extent of the brokenness of the systems, but it is not unreasonable to expect that there are things in our social structures that could be improved, right? Because racial racist segregation by law was not that long ago. My living grandmothers have told me stories about having to watch movies from the black section of movie theaters. My dad was already eight years old when Congress finally decided that racially segregated public accommodations were illegal. 
Now, America's made stunning progress, amazing progress in a short amount of time in many areas of racial relations. Praise God, right? Because my dad could not go to a playground as a child with white kids. But I now I go to family reunions with my white family members and I'm accepted and loved, right? Praise God for that progress. But even so, it's not a stretch to think that a country that was segregated by law, not even 60 years ago, doesn't still suffer from the evil practices and attitudes that built it up. We may have remodeled certain rooms in the House of America and given them makeovers, but sometimes you got to get into the foundations and the structural bones of a house in order to fix deep problems that, you know, the cosmetic fixes won't solve. And not only that, but because the Bible tells us the world is corrupted by sin, and because we know that sinful people build sinful systems, we can expect systems in the world to be broken and need of gospel power healing. And beyond structural problems, God calls us to justice that is more intimate and personally costly. In Isaiah 58, he calls the Israelites and us to share our bread with the home hungry and bring the homeless poor into our houses, to clothe the naked, to not hide ourselves away from hurting and needy people whom he calls our own flesh, to take away the yoke from our midst, to the pointing fingers and wicked talk, to pour ourselves out for the hungry and satisfy the desires of, of the afflicted. These things mark the kind of people that God calls us to be. Biblical justice means seeing where the world has been broken from God's design and honoring God by spending ourselves to fix it. Justice is seeing people in need and pouring ourselves out to meet those needs. And that's something we can do because of the gospel. The gospel gives us motivation because Christ's love compels us. Philippians 2 points out that even though Jesus had the ultimate privilege, being in the very nature God, he did not view his status as something to cling to and hold on to for himself. Instead, he emptied himself on our behalf and became obedient to the point of death on the cross. And he calls us to have the same mindset, right? When we understand what God has done for us, when we understand that every good thing we have comes from him, when we realize that we own nothing and are merely stewards of God's graces in his multiple forms, then we are kept from being selfish and stingy with what God has given us. We are free to be joyfully generous with our possessions, our time, our skills, our lives. The gospel gives us not just motivation, though. It also gives us power and promise, too. Because honestly, I read that list in Isaiah 58 and I get disheartened because I don't think I live that way, or at least I don't live that way enough. And honestly, I don't even want, always want to. It sounds painful and costly and exhausting. But guilt that I'm not doing enough is not enough to move my heart into the kind of cheerful, sacrificial living that God is calling for. But thanks to the gospel, we don't have to be paralyzed with guilt of our imperfect pursuit of justice. Jesus is our perfect justice who fulfilled all the law and whose righteousness is credited to all who believe in his name. In Luke 4.18, Jesus is in a synagogue and he reads from, the, from Isaiah and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the, to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of, the, of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he follows that up with, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Boom. Mic drop. 
And look at what God promises in Isaiah 58 for those who live God's way, right? Your light will break forth like the dawn. Your healing will quickly appear. Your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. You will call and the Lord will answer. Your night will, your light will rise in the darkness. Your night will become like noon. The Lord will satisfy you, your needs in a sun-scorched land will strengthen your frame. You'll be like a well-watered gar- garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. You will find your joy in the Lord and he will cause you to ride and triumph from the heights of the land. Does that not sound like what you want? Like life for your soul? These things are promised to those who pursue God's justice, who pour themselves out to fix the brokenness in the world they see around them because they have been filled with the love of Jesus. Because Jesus now lives in us, we have the hope of bringing justice into this world. And that's good news because hopelessness is one of the other fruits of racism, right? Because of the magnitude and the pervasiveness of the problems that come with racism, hopelessness springs around wherever racism flourishes. Hopelessness keeps people from the costly pursuit of justice because what's the point if failure is inevitable, if the problem is just too big? Also, people who have been given a hopeless narrative their whole life about their worth and their struggles will often have difficulty putting forth the effort it takes even to improve their own situation. When there is no hope for a good future, it is easy to give in to the allure of temporary relief like drugs, sex, gambling, and other deceptive, destructive addictions. But 1 Peter 1.3 says the gospel gives us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for us. Hebrews 6.19 says, we have this hope as an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. So we don't have to be blown around by every wind of change. We don't have to resign ourselves to the hopelessness of victimhood. We don't have to give up trying to overcome the hopelessness of the evil in ourselves and the world because we know that God has given us a hope that will outlast the very world. And because 1 Corinthians 15.58 says that our labor in the Lord is not in vain, we can continue to pursue justice and harmony with the assurance that God will reward the time and energy we pour out. And more than that, we know that Jesus will be eternally victorious over every evil and will right every wrong. So our hope is completely secure. Vengeance is another one of the fruits of racism, right? Because of the injustices that people often suffer under racism, vengeance springs out whatever racism flourishes. Vengeance is that desire to punish those who have wronged us, um, to inflict on them the same pain they have inflicted on us. It's the spirit of vengeance that causes the oppressed people to seek to become oppressors. It causes people to commit the same evils that they suffered. It's what causes minorities and, and their allies to devalue ma- majority culture, to silence people from talking simply because they don't have enough victim status. The spirit of vengeance is, is what is at work when we rejoice in the suffering of people who we think deserve it. Um, it's that feeling in our hearts when we hope that someone teaches those rioters a lesson, when we wish judgment on people we think are doing wrong. Vengeance is tricky because it often stems from a source of truth and justice, right? Because evil does demand payment. There is a debt that needs to be paid whenever evil is committed. But human vengeance has a number of problems. One is that our perspective is often skewed because of our limitations. We don't even know everything about our own selves. We don't know the future and we have a fuzzy recollection of the past. And so we can never be sure that our vengeance is just, that we are exacting the proper amount of justice for the crime. And another issue is our imperfection. 
We are lawbreakers and evildoers ourselves who have done things deserving of vengeance against us. So who are we to judge others? Also, our own sinfulness often leads us to seek vengeance with muddied motives. We are rarely purely after justice. We often want to avenge our wounded pride by crushing our opposition to dust. And lastly is the fact that because of these factors, our souls can't handle executing vengeance. Our vengeance is usually just part of a cycle of evil and injustice, creating more sin that consumes our own selves even as we seek to hurt others. There is a reason why Confucius famously said, before you embark on a journey of revenge, dig two graves. The unforgiveness that demands vengeance is a poison for our own selves that will lead to our own death. So how can we be set free? To simply let go of the sin committed against us and say it doesn't matter is a lie that perverts justice and lets evil reign, which will destroy our souls and our communities. But to hold on to our grievances and to demand payment, to demand retribution and vengeance, is a poison which will destroy, destroy our souls and communities. But the gospel gives us a way out. Because in the gospel, we know that full payment for every sin was laid on Jesus on the cross. This sets us free from the sins that would condemn us, yes, but it also sets us free from having to hold other people's sins over their heads. We forgive not by burying other people's sins and saying they don't matter. We forgive by treating their sins like we treat our own, nailed to the cross, paid for in Jesus' blood. And even for people who reject Jesus' blood and his payment, we know that God will avenge every wrong when his wrath is poured out on all evil at the end. So to the degree that we embrace the assurance that justice will be done, either through Jesus or through God's judgment, to that degree, we will be able to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, to love those who spitefully use and abuse us. Because we know that we're not being passive doormats, allowing their evil to go unchecked. We look to the cross, to our God, who has made sure that every wrong will be made right. Romans 12 says, Do not take revenge, dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to eat. And doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Because the gospel tells us that we have committed great evil, but that Jesus overcame that evil with his love, we can love and forgive others, knowing that we are no more deserving of grace and forgiveness than they are. We can let go of our thirst for vengeance because we know that the God of justice will not let even the slightest grievance go unpunished. There will be a just payment for every sin, either through the cross or through God's judgment on the last day. The cross is also the best, most holistic way to deal with with the guilt that blooms from the seeds of racism. Guilt has various ways of interfering with the unity and harmony God calls us to. Um, John Piper writes in his book, Bloodlines, guilt is a huge player in the way blacks and whites relate to each other. It's huge and deadly when it is denied. It's huge and deadly when it is wallowed in. It's huge and deadly when it is exploited. There's no deliverance, no relief, and no healing in any of those ways of dealing with the guilt. Denial allows for more sin and self-justification and hardness of heart to grow. Exploiting guilt gives an illusion of power and, like vengeance, turns the oppressed into the oppressor, perverting and hollowing out their souls. Wallowing in guilt holds up and strengthens the dividing wall of sin that keeps God-honoring racial harmony from becoming a reality. 
But the gospel allows us to take an honest look at ourselves and expose the ugliness that we find in there. We don't have to hide from our guilt through denial or wallow in our guilt through self-deprecating despair because we know that Christ has seen us in the depths of our hideous sin and he has washed us clean in our deepest innermost parts. And also the thought of exploiting guilt for our own gain is nailed to the cross along with all of the other sins, all of our other sin, paid in full. The gospel breaks down walls and allows us to move forward in racial unity and harmony and reconciliation. Because the gospel is not just a philosophy to help us think through difficult problems. The gospel is the dynamite power of God to make us into new people with new hearts, to set us free from spiritual shackles. Praise God that he didn't send his teacher to be an example for us, right? When we choose to follow Jesus, he comes into our hearts with power to change our very reality, to make living a life of love actually possible. It's a, it's a reality that we won't fully experience in this broken world. But the taste of heaven that Jesus gives is a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This life has the power to crush the fruits of racism wherever we encounter it, whether out there in the world or in our own hearts. Wherever you are on your journey towards Jesus, whether you're not even sure you're on a journey or whether you're almost home, Jesus has his arms open to us with an invitation for more. More of his presence, more intimacy with him, more of his power at work in your world. If you want to answer that invitation, please do it. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you invite us into this life that you've called us to, Lord. That you invite us not just to be nice people. um, You invite us to be people who are zealous for good works. Zealous to go out there and to bring your life and your light into the darkness of the world that we see. God, we don't have to be victims of division. We don't have to be victims of oppression. We don't have to be victims of the world's narrative. In you, God, we can, we are set free and we become new creations. Our identity is in you. So God, we pray that you would help us to embrace that, Lord. We pray that you forgive us of our sins. Lord, forgive us for all the times that we have shut our hearts off from those who are hurt and wounded and oppressed. Lord, forgive us for that imperfections, God, and and give us the righteousness of Jesus. And Lord, we thank you for inviting us to be your friend, to be your family. In Jesus' name, amen.